Hi, welcome to the Made Up Savannah podcast. I'm your host, Dee Daniels. Our podcast studios at 251 Bull Street, Savannah, is just steps away from one of my all-time favorite burgers in town with grilled mushrooms, uh, provolone cheese, horseradish, and a whole lot of wow over at the public kitchen and bar. Uh, Just steps through that dining room, you'll be whisked away to one of my favorite soup and sandwich combos at Franklin's, and then you're right across the street from the very first location. My family and I had an unbelievable Southern experience at Soho, and finally, after all these years, I'm sitting down for a chat with the managing partner for Daniel Reed Hospitality, the hub for all of these amazing places, Jamie Durrance. Thank you for being on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to talk about all of these places I just mentioned um, and so much more. But I want to start with these are such well-known places here, and you've been here for 1998, so I didn't do the math. A long time, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get to Savannah, and why Savannah? Um, I got to Savannah because, well, I was always in Savannah because my mother would pick me up from school and take me shopping here to, you know, get the essentials, the shoes, the shirts. And so I always had a love for Savannah, but I didn't really quite know it from a a living here standpoint until I came to move here in 98. Um, So the journey there began. I grew up in Glenville, Georgia. It's a very small rural farm town on a working farm of about 200 acres. And my dad um, and my mother taught me at a very early age the value of hard work. Didn't have much of a summer. I had lots of early mornings, tobacco fields, chicken houses. And then when I was about 18 years old or so, I happened upon a friend who said, you might should try going over to Ruby Tuesday and working. And having eaten there before, I thought, well, okay, maybe we'll try that. Um, I did, and I made $100, and I thought, wow. That was big time. <laughs> it was huge. Yeah. Um, you know, could go to work for a couple of hours and come back home with $100 in my pocket, and I thought, wow, that's, the, that's just awesome. Right. So um, I did that while I was um, going to school at Georgia Southern. I think I sort of did a triangle. It was Glenville to Statesburg, and then I'd go to school in the morning, and then drive to Vidalia, which is, I don't know, maybe 30 or 45 minutes in the opposite direction, go work a long shift, and then drive back home late at night to Glenville, and that was sort of my pattern for a little while. And then I um, didn't know what I was going to do in school, so at Georgia Southern, just kind of bebopped around, and all of a sudden I stumbled across this little tiny building there, Um, and it was the fashion department at Georgia Southern, which nobody even knew they had one, and... uh, so I thought, wow, that's very interesting. You know, maybe, maybe I could do that. Yeah. So I signed up there, and then I quickly realized that my, you know, dreams of becoming a big-time fashion designer probably weren't going to happen if I stayed at Georgia Southern. So stumbled across Savannah College of Art and Design. So mm-hmm. um, I came here and um, worked through putting myself through SCAD. Obviously, loans helped too, but yes. I was a worker and a student. And then I got um, my first job in Savannah at the restaurant industry was at Chart House. Oh, wow. Down on River Street. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's kind of like anybody maybe that's new that comes to Savannah, even though I've been here many times, but like in the industry, like you just jumped down to River Street back then Mm because you knew you could get a job somewhere. Right. So did that. And then, um, then I met this amazing general manager at one of the Baelish's restaurants um, who owned 
the old pink house, Caribaldi's. And there was this fabulous little restaurant called Bistro Savannah, and it was right next to Paula Dean's. Um, this is back when Paula was in the alley behind, you know, the restaurants. Right. You run into her all the time. And I just fell in love with it. And uh, I stayed there for many years until I graduated SCAT and then went to New York City for a couple of years and worked in the fashion design industry and then decided I'd come back to Savannah. I, I've heard this uh, come back to Savannah mm. story and a lot of um, and a lot of a lot of people that are like, you know, I, I was here, I left, I came back. What brought you back? I mean, you were in New York, you were sort of living the what a lot of people would say, living the dream, doing that in that place. So we're in a real estate office. Kind of an interesting story, actually. Um, how I got to New York City from Savannah is kind of fascinating. It is to me anyway. It's one of my my favorite stories. But um, Andre Leontali was editor-at-large or chief editor-at-large for Vogue. I don't know exactly what his title was then. And he was doing a lot of work with Savannah College of Art and Design. And being a fashion design student and graduating, of course, Scott had a fashion show, but I was going to have my own fashion show. Right, too, of so. course. Um, with the help of my parents and a lot of friends, I rented out Savannah Station and through this fashion show. And out of that, I got a pretty cool book collection of photographs and things. And I had this dream of moving to New York City, not knowing who or how I'd get there or pay for it or go work for it. And Andre was staying down in the Casey house, which is just down the street on Oglethorpe. And I learned that he was there. So I grabbed all of my stuff, my few dresses and things that I had made in my books. And I went down to Casey house and I knocked on the door and I said, I have an appointment with Andre. And they looked at me like, you are absolutely out of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> you absolutely don't have an appointment with Andre. I said, no, I do. The old, I have an appointment trick. Yeah. I like that. Good opening. I don't know if it was just magic in the universe, but sure enough, five minutes later, I was sitting out on the couch with him. Mm. And um, it was a very quick meeting. And we just literally met one another. I'm sure he thought I was, you know, bold. Right. Um, so at the very end of it, he said, well, who do you want to work for in New York City? And I said, my favorite designer is really is Carolina Herrera. I just, I love her. I think she's so elegant and timeless. And he said, okay. And then I walked out the door. You know, I felt pretty proud of myself for having mm, done it. I expecting bet. nothing. The next morning at about 1030, my phone rings. And it's the, um, I forget his name then, but it was Carolina Herrera's office. And, and they said... Um, we have a job for you. So whenever you're ready to come up, come up. So in a magical spark, I ended up, you know, having a internship slash job with the brand that I wanted. And then, wow. um, so I was, I was there for a little while and then of course I needed more money. So I interviewed with Liz Claiborne and I got a job there as product manager for Ellen Tracy, which is kind of an old school, That's right. you know, label, um, you know, did that, and then I needed more money. Right? So, <laughs> Such is life. So I decided that I would also get my real estate license in New York City. I'm a terrible tester, and my then partner, Alan, was with me at the time, and we went together to, to get our real estate license in the evenings, and he, you know, like, I don't know, sat down. The test was over with him in 10 minutes, and I sat there to the very end, you know, like crunching everything. Right, right. To make a long story short out of that, um, we ended up getting our real estate license. Um, I still worked in fashion during the day, um, and then I kind of transitioned out of fashion into full-time real estate at Benjamin James Real Estate in New York City. Um, and I was rookie of the year out of, I don't know, however many agents they had, like in the first six months. Wow. So you asked how I got to Savannah. Interestingly enough, I was on the subway. 
And it's crazy in New York City how you see the same people over and over. Right. I lived down at 45 Wall Street, and we worked in, you know, in the garment district, then also um, near Chelsea. You see a lot of the same people every day. Right. But there was a moment where I sat on the train, and all I saw was sadness in people's faces. Mm. It was just like they were zombied, like just generally unhappy. I don't know. If, I don't know that necessarily they were unhappy overall, but in those moments of that travel and just the the push and the shove and the grind, and I I just looked at myself and I said I can't allow myself to feel like I have to stay in New York City to prove something to myself. I've wow. already done what I've proven that I could do, so I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go back to Savannah. I'm going to figure out what's next, and that's how I landed back here in 2006. What a moment for you to really sort of not brush that off. I think a lot of us have those moments, yeah. and we're like, eh, it's just, ah, you know, grind, same old, same old, and that's why I'm feeling this way right now, but you really took that to heart. I hate that part of that song where it says, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Oh, God. You know, it's like, it's it's one of those things I feel like so many young people have this desire to to go to New York City to prove something to themselves. And it's it's a very difficult city. Mm -hmm. You know, and $100,000 in New York City, you have this amazing landscape. Can't enjoy any of it. Right. There's not enough cash to go around to do anything. I mean, we would take the train over to... To, to Brooklyn to, to Target to buy spaghetti sauce and noodles. Right, right. Yeah. And you have to live in a closet, basically, yeah. you know, if you're trying to make any money and it's difficult and it can't turn around and you have to stay outside to see the view and yeah, that's right. <laughs> spend money all the time yeah. <laughs> to enjoy any of that life. It was an um, awesome experience. It really helped shape who I am. So I'm so glad it happened that way. I was going to say it was probably a meant to be dot on the journey for you. No doubt about it. So you came back to Savannah. How did you land with Daniel Reed and and how did all of that come about? So I first came back and the intention was to, um, to start a little real estate company with another guy here in town. Um, I think we called it icon real estate. His name was Matthew and everything plummeted right mm. away. It was just very bad timing. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I went back to restaurants. Um, I, in fact, this is a crazy part of the story also. Um, we decided we were going to move back from New York to Savannah. And I remember the process being very quick. We must have been close to the end of our lease or whatever. I didn't, I didn't have anything lined up except potentially this conversation to open this real estate company. And um, I didn't have room for my mattress um, so I left it laying on the corner of Wall Street and William Street oh, against gosh. the stop sign <laughs> and just left. And we got through the tunnel and came out on the other side and my phone rang and it was Donna Baelish who owned Bistro. Mm-hmm. And she said, Jamie, I hear you come back to Savannah. I'm like, I just figured out I, I'm just coming back to Savannah. Are you in my head? I know. And so <laughs> she said, listen, when you get back here, come straight back to Bistro. Right. I want you to be the general manager again at Bistro. Oh, wow. So I kind of, even though I had this real estate dream on the side, I went straight back into restaurants. Mm. So that's how I started back in restaurants. And then um, I worked at a couple of different ones um, also, but mainly how we started Daniel Reed. Um it's kind of a funny thing too. Everybody thinks they know Daniel Reed. It happens all the time in the restaurants. Well, I know Daniel Reed. I, yes, I've yeah. I've talked to him. We've hung out at a party. Yeah, and he dot, doesn't dot, dot. exist. Yes, you know, it's, it's my middle name <laughs> and my business partner's middle name put together. Um, but local eleven ten, um, my business partner Reed Delaney and his wife Meredith, they wanted to open a local restaurant in Savannah. And at that time, two thousand seven, south of Forsyth Park, 
you know, it was a pretty bold move mm. um, back then. But there was this beautiful old building, um, the old Savannah Bank was in that had been vacant for a long time. So um, he partnered up with another chef guy um, for the restaurant side of the business, which they didn't really know that much about, I think. And it was a little short lived on that and on that partnership. And the restaurant was there for, let's see, 2007, March. And I think I came along in like November 2009 or something like that. So um, they just needed help. They needed, um, I think the, the restaurant was good. It wasn't great. It started off great. I think they lost confidence in the diners and needed a fresh set of eyes and things. And um, having done what I've done, I sort of had a conversation with, uh, with Reed and said, look, you know, I, I, I love managing restaurants, but I'm kind of at a point where I also want you know, the next thing to come out of this. And, and I was just kind of frank with him. And I said, you know, if I can turn this around for you and for me, you know, is there a potential that we could um, do more things together? And so I kind of laid some numbers on the table and kind of thought I was crazy, mm. but that was all I needed. That was, that was the ammunition to, um, to figure out, you know, how I was going to turn this restaurant around, make it profitable and do other things. So, so is that the first restaurant in the group? It is. Okay. Yep. Yep. And we've made changes over the years to local, but it's still just as awesome as it was in 2007. They did such a great job designing that way back then it still still feels current and fresh you know mm-hmm. but we added um the private dining room on um shortly after i came on board we, we realized that we just if we were going to make it profitable we needed more seats this right is not enough seats so right we closed in the patio um added in the private dining room that was great then we said oh let's go a step further nobody talks about rooftop bars back then i mean perch i'm sure there was a rooftop bar but i think perch probably was one of the first standalone kind of rooftop bars or a restaurant thing. So we were ahead of the time on that. And local was ahead of the time in general. I mean, 2007 farm to table cuisine wasn't something that bounced off every person's mouth. Well, and in the spot that it's in, it was, it had to be like a beaming light for all other restaurants because there wasn't a lot or there wasn't anything around that area that was exactly like that or even close to it really very very destination and also not necessarily the safest place either right i mean a lot of people you know that live generally where we're at liberty you know they don't they didn't walk through forsyth park and pass forsyth park um but it was new and fresh and exciting and um i think once i got in there and was able to really help assemble the right pieces together to make it the best it could be. I think it's when it really kind of hit its stride. And I feel like today, like I'm so proud of, of what we're doing there today. I mean, I mean, I think local now is better than it ever has been, which is in the life of restaurants, a great feeling, but going back to um, how we got to where we are, the public kitchen and bar was the offspring of that conversation at my table with Reed. Um, you know, I would, go to local for two years and, you know, I'd get there early in the morning and I was the last one to leave at night and I figured out the accounting and I, I, I learned everything that I needed to know to make that restaurant a success. And then that was, you know, that was the juice in order to, to make public kitchen and bar and, um, location, 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 right? I mean, mm. it's not the story of real estate or, right. or anything. And there was this corner here for Lisa it had been Charlotte's t-shirt shop. I mean, it was for 20 something years, but I saw a sign in the window or somebody showed it to me and I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Right. I mean, it was just like, it has been such a blessing. 
in my life, and I'm going to cry right now, but I could talk about it, because uh, what it has enabled or how it has enabled me as a person to grow um, has been just awesome. But it was supposed to be just this little little sandwich shop. Right. You know? And it just turned into this thing that was so much better than what we ever anticipated. I mean, I'll never forget, like, doing the financials for the first four weeks. And I was like, this can't be right. Right. <laughs> Something's not right here. Someone's doing fuzzy math. Yeah. Something's it, happening. It was right. Yeah. And it's been... Um, and something was awesome. happening, obviously. I mean, there was something that was super special that was going on, and it has only continued to boom at this beautiful corner. Well, 2012, I mean, it brings a new a new meaning to the word, you know, upscale casual. Mm -hmm. 2012, there really wasn't what we would deem upscale, upscale casual. And the thing, what people really, people were mad at me for the first couple of months because all they knew about us was local 1110, mm -hmm. you know, so they wanted the reservations and to be able to, you know, come in at eight o'clock and sit and I have to wait in line. And I, and I said, it's never going to happen here. If I take reservations at this location, I'll make half the money because people aren't going to show up on time. People, especially in this area, too, where it's a little more casual, mm -hmm. people can walk up down the street and fall into another location right. and not show up at the door. Right. Uh, but my phone, my phone just didn't stop for the first, you know, three or four months. I just can't believe you don't accept reservations. Still stuck through that today. I get a little bit of a hard time from the locals still. Oh, They're I bet. a little angry at me for, you know, not putting them, you know, first in line sometimes. But my general feeling is, is that any person that, desires to dine at the public kitchen and bar is just as worthy as anybody else. So just because you live five blocks down the street doesn't mean that you should cut in line in front of somebody that's waited 30 minutes at the door. I just Absolutely. Find that yes. A good thing. And now I apologize for any time that I've gotten mad because I've had to wait in line there. Yes. Okay. Just so you know, now that I know the story, okay. I'm just, <laughs> I release all of that, that anger <laughs> that I had. It, but at the time when you first started over at the public, was there a rooftop? seating there was there any of that or did you just start and there wasn't franklin's yes yeah, so we we have 44 chairs on the street um we don't technically lease the patio okay. from the landlord um at the, for many years they only allowed us to use it for lunch monday through friday i okay. believe if my memory serves me correctly it's been some time um it wasn't really until after the fire that we started thinking about utilizing it more in the evenings and they were very, very kind to let me use it on Saturday night. I mean, sorry, on Sunday nights, Monday nights, and Tuesday nights. Mm -hmm. So I have it during the nighttime on those three nights, which we have live music there now, which is right. awesome too. Yes. But we still have it for lunch every day now. So we get the weekends too. Which is lunch, great. Which is great. Which yeah. is great. And when did Franklin's come along? Franklin's had been on the wall in Robbie, my husband and creative director of the company, wall of, of our old office for years, for years. Um, you know, we're, we're skipping past some artillery in Soho and stuff, yes, so we'll get back to that. Get but to, but Franklin's um, was just this idea of expanding Publix Kitchen. We needed more space. When we first built Publix Kitchen, we were working with such confined areas. I mean, the hood system design was horrible and did even pull smoke out of the kitchen. Oh, you know? wow. So for, for years, well, 2012, we had the fire in, what was that, 20, it's been a long time, um, it was just not a great place to work down there. It's mm. very confined. I mean, we, we were serving, you know, sometimes 550, 600 people a day. 
we had one one six burner stove, one flat top, and a salamander. Oh and wow! And every bit of the food for the entire day came off the, those small pieces of equipment. So um, after the fire, we were able to expand a little bit. But Franklin's actually was built. Was, we were almost done with Franklin's right before the fire, and then the fire happened, and then we had to start all over again. Right. So that was a whole thing. But the idea of Franklin's really was um, let's think about how we can expand the brand of what we call One West Liberty, which is artillery, public, um, and now Franklin's, and make them work together as a team collaboratively. We don't offer breakfast at public, so it was kind of a, a way of giving our customers something all day. You've got right. Franklin's in the morning, even though it's open all day. Right. You've got public for lunch and dinner, and then you've got artillery in the evening. So it just kind of comes full circle. Artillery is just ridiculous. It is so, there's such a vibe going on there that, I mean, I remember uh, the first couple of times we went and we're like, wow, this is the coolest little place we've ever been. And and it was just this, I don't know, it, it the cocktails, the the bartenders, everyone there, everyone was so knowledgeable, and and it was this upscale moment. But you didn't feel like you had to be dressed in a certain way, or you had to be having a certain kind of evening to go. It was this like, oh, I feel fancy in here, but I'm okay with what I'm wearing. Yeah. Like it's you know, it was you're that. Not wearing a hat, we don't really like hats. No hats and no something else, like no tank tops or something. That would be nice. Okay, too, yeah, but, but I mean, I, I'm generally not in a hat or a tank top, so <laughs> I felt fine when I walked in the door. <laughs> But that was such a great experience, and and we experienced that before we moved here several years ago. And we were just visiting, and we we also experienced Soho for the first yeah. time, um, which is now just an event space, yeah. and it was a restaurant at the time, and it was like wow, yeah. this that was the first restaurant we went to um, in Savannah, the very first, and it was Soho yeah, for lunch. and it was on. It was on a recommendation, and this is what I think. What is, year was that? I can't remember the year. I, I just it was so interesting. Did we have fried chicken on the menu? Yes, we did. Yes. Okay, so that was after we changed. The, it was it was more recent than to some degree. Okay. Yeah. The, the thing the thing about Soho that drove, drove me absolutely nuts is that in 2013, um, the lady that owned Soho was Bonnie. She was great, but she did not want to sell that building. Um, it was her baby. It was her business. And I just started going over there having conversations with her about it, you know, and, and anyway, she agreed to sell it. She ended up um, being diagnosed with cancer and passed away, I don't know, maybe a year later. So it was all really good luck and fortune of the universe again right. coming together right. for that partnership to, uh, to make that happen. Oh, my gosh, I couldn't walk down the street. I mean, people would stop me and say, um, you cannot take the tuna and the swat salad off the menu. <laughs> you know, you cannot get rid of this. Oh, no. You cannot get rid of that. Oh, and no. it drove me nuts. I couldn't even walk to the bank. I mean, this it was crazy. Wow. I'm not, this is the truth. And finally, I think that went on for like three years and I just scrapped the entire menu. Yes. Put fryers in there and started over again. Right. You know, it was a very ladies' lunch of Savannah atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Whenever Bonnie, there's lots of cold cut sandwiches and, um, you know, it was, it was, it was good. Um, but we also, we needed something different there. So, right. um, but I, we loved having the lunch service there. Um, but really the problem with the lunch service was that we, well, first of all, going back to, you know, successes and failures, um, 
when we purchased Soho and opened it, we opened it for lunch and dinner. Um, dinner was a huge failure. Mm-hmm. Nobody could wrap their head around going to Soho in the evening time. It goes back to that saying, you know, you are what you are, what you are. Yes. And having the restaurant, having been there as a lunch place for so long, it just wasn't exciting for people. Um, so we, I quickly realized that I had to pivot. I mean, I think we opened in November and then I closed down, um, dinner service the following calendar year. So mm-hmm. December, the following calendar year, we were done with that and I needed a way to find more revenue. So we thought events. So, um, we brought on Elise Sweeney. She helped us um, build a package out. And what happened really was is that the event started to take off. But then here, more recent years, we were doing 80 to 100 events a year. Well, they're all on you know Friday and Saturday, Sunday or Thursday, typically. Our busiest lunch shifts are, of course, Thursday, Friday, right. Saturday, Sunday. Um, I hated the furniture in there, the old mismatched furniture. Mm-hmm. But that was part of the appeal of Soho. Right. So anytime we did an event, we would have to open for lunch um, at 11, close at 3, throw all of that mismatched furniture into what felt like a back of a pickup truck, or I would go rent U-Hauls because there wasn't enough room for it, Um, and then set up for a wedding, tear it all down, bring all the stuff back out, open for business the next morning at 7 a.m. It was exhausting. Oh, so when coronavirus came along and I said, hmm, this might be a good time to... Time to streamline this yeah, situation. Yeah, so we just yeah. did. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was a great... I mean, and that was the time. I mean, we, we were there for that short time where there was lunch and it was just amazing. I mean, it was it was great. And we fell in love with the space. Yeah. And then we're like, wow, of course, of course people want to have weddings here. Yeah. Of course this is the place to have events. I mean, yeah. it's a beautiful, beautiful space. And it's just one of those things where it's like... I get it. I get, I mean, now looking at artillery, looking at, you know, uh, uh, the public looking at all of these places, I I'm like, Oh my gosh, I get the, I get the theme. I get the vibe. I get, I get all of it. And it's very electric. And I think so much of it is obviously due to creativity at the helm and, you know, congrats to that because it comes across so much. I mean, and you've obviously been, with your hands in the in the food culture here for quite some time, what do you think it is about Savannah's food culture that makes it so special? It's an interesting question. I mean, if you go on to go to Google and you type in, you know, Savannah's hot food scene, an article will come up and it's the 10, you know, must tries of Savannah. I mean, it ranges from, you know, Randy's Barbecue, this mm-hmm. little shack on the street down mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. Um, to local, 1110, to the Pink House, to the Gray, to Cotton and Rye, um, you know, Mellow Mushroom. You just, you, there's just a pulse. I really feel like it's more the energy and the spirit of Savannah than it is the food. I mean, if you go to a different city, right, and you take a vacation, you're going to be there for a weekend or whatever. Well, part of your journey is finding a place to eat, right? Yes. But the journey of the food scene is not, you know, just about the food. It's also about, you know, how long is it going to take you to walk or Uber there and how you're going to get back after you've been drinking. And the food might look good, but really there's this ambiance thing that is so important now for people where, you know, a lot of people could just be fine getting mediocre food sitting in a fabulous place so they can wear their red pumps. Right. You know, so, um, but Savannah just has a very eclectic mix of restaurants, I think. I mean, it's changed so much 
you know, back when I was managing Bistro, you know, you could walk out your door to the left or right and find some restaurants, but now it's just packed. There's restaurants everywhere. I think that um, it's important to also, like for me as a, as a restaurant owner and someone who's tried to develop a brand, and we, when, we, when we look at Artillery, Public, Soho, Franklin's, local, you know, Skyfair, the private aviation catering company, Daniel Reed Catering Events, they all work really congruently together as a brand. And that's something that we've that we've really tried to do. There are times where I feel like there is this need or push for people to, you know, lease out any space they can lease out and open a restaurant for the sake of opening a restaurant. Right. It's just not it's not the way I do it. But you know, some people are that way. Um, so there are lots of good restaurants. I think there are some great restaurants and then there's just a lot of restaurants. Right. There's something for everybody. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's definitely, uh, I feel like you're right. I think there's almost that it factor that you were talking about in New York uh, that I feel here sometimes where it's like, well, if you want to open a restaurant, you should do it in the South and you should do it in Savannah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, maybe I don't know, a couple of years ago, I was a little nervous about, you know, um, competition not not competing directly with the other restaurant down the street but the more restaurants that open the more people need to come seemingly that's not a problem i mean the hotels keep going up the rooms keep filling um so i think there's going to be plenty of people to go around yeah and there's really not a downtime here much anymore it's so crazy you say that at bistro in as soon as either SCAD graduated there was some first week in june that seemed like like you know the water was cut off I mean, there were nights in June, July, and August where we would do 10 people all night long. We'd open at 5 o'clock, we'd close at 10, and we'd serve 10, 15 people. And that was wow. regular. I mean, the August here, August was very, very difficult. Um, and then, of course, December, we're in this witching hour now that I'm not too crazy about as a mm. restaurant owner from Thanksgiving yeah. to Christmas. It's is a very strange funky funky phase, week. yeah. Um, and then... Um, and then, of course, January and February weren't that good either. Now we're getting a little bit more of a, you know, it's not great downtime like it used to be. August mm-hmm. is still pretty good. Yeah. But a lot of it's weather, weather too. Yes. If the weather's, you know, decent in January and February, we're, we're going to be busy. Right. Busier. Right. Right. So it's kind of like farming. You're just at the mercy of the sky and the sun. I was going to say, you growing up on a farm and, and working, and <laughs> you were telling me before we started, your parents are still doing it. They are. Um, which is commendable. Um, wow. But I, did that give you a love for this farm to table? Did that give you a love for, you know, sort of, you know, just pulling in that that feeling of like, Let's grow it. Let's eat it. Let's respect it. Well, certainly the relationship, you know, at local 1110 being a real true, you know, to its core farm to table restaurant, we've always developed relationships with farmers there. So I appreciated the fact that, that I was, um, you know, quote unquote, taking over this business and nourishing it up to really push those boundaries of those relationships and bring more and more partners in that are, are true farmers um, obviously it's a very difficult task because farmers don't have delivery trucks, um, or invoices sometimes, which right. is kind of a necessary thing. Right. You know, they come and they drop things off and, you know, you just kind of figure out how you're going to pay them or right. whatever. So right. it's challenging, but I think that 
you know, one of the things that is important to remember about the restaurant business, you know, is that the restaurant business is a, is a manufacturing business. I've, I've always understood that we are, we are a company that brings in a lot of raw materials every day. Yeah. Boxes high. Right. In the hallway at public, you should see it. The truck pulls up and it's boxes and boxes of, of materials that he broken down. And chefs break all that down and then they, you know, we put it all together. We sell it at a profit. Guess what? We start over the next morning manufacturing again. Mm -hmm. Looking at it in that way makes you appreciate, you know, what we do. And it makes you appreciate the boxes that come in and how those boxes got there. And being on a farm, I know firsthand, you know, how difficult and hard it is to make money in farming right now. I mean, it's almost impossible to make a living in farming. I don't know what the end and it's going to be with that, you know, in five or 10 years. Machinery is so expensive. Um, labor is ridiculous. There's just a threshold that's, you know, it's got to be maintained. And I don't know how that's going to work long term, but I'm sure we'll figure something out. Maybe. Yes, we have Plankton to. Plankton or yeah. kelp, carp, whatever. Something. <laughs> kelp, I think. Kelp, yes. <laughs> something. We'll figure it out. Um, your parents must be very proud of where you are and what you're doing. I say that I have got the best blend of good old country boy and good old country girl. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think just as proud as they may think I am, of, uh, or they are of me, I'm just as equally fortunate and proud of them. Yeah. If you go to anywhere in Glenville, my hometown, or, you know, in fact, um, Miss Cindy Moore, who lives across the street, called me and said, I've got some people from Glenville here. They want to see you. So I said, okay. So I popped down from the office. And it's five or six people I know, and, and every one of them, you know, without me even saying goes, I just love your mom and dad. Oh, They're just the nicest people. And oh, I, said, I love yeah, that. The salt of the earth. Yeah. They really are. You're they right. Are. I mean, you said they're in their 70s. and 71, I think. Still yeah. working. Yeah. Still getting up early morning. Still yeah. doing all the things on the farm. And then driving on Saturday down to, what is it? Not um, St. Not Augustine, but... Fernandina Beach yes, and yes. setting up a tent until yes. I meet. And then you get up at like four in the morning, drive there with a truck and refrigerate. I mean, why? <laughs> to make money. They still have to make money. That's right. Yeah. As my friend Elena would say, bless their hearts. Yeah. I mean, goodness. It's crazy. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, I didn't mean to skip over this, but I want to talk a little bit about the fire over at the public. That was something that we were still living in Virginia at the time. And we were like, we heard about it. And we were like, whoa. And it was so, I think it was such a heavy hearted moment for everyone in Savannah and everyone that had been to Savannah and everyone that loved Savannah. And it was like, oh gosh, what was that like on your end? Pitiful. Yeah. It was so heartbreaking. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's turned out and, and after the fact, and there's a wood somewhere to knock on, you know, it was, it was it actually was a very fortunate event and I'll tell you why in a minute, but um, you know, we had opened a restaurant in Atlanta at Phipps Plaza in 2018, and we had a very difficult time. There was a prior restaurant there that did very well, uh, but it did not translate. We opened the public kitchen there, it didn't translate very well. So it was all, I was already um, very stressed from that. And then coronavirus was a big thing that was happening, going on. And we had just opened local 1110 back up, I think, May the 20th or something. So we had just gotten back open after being closed for a couple of months. Right. Um, public, we sort of did this, you know, walk in the door, you know, order food, sit outside kind of thing. And we had been open for a week. And then I got the call that the restaurant had called on fire. Mm. 
I think that was June the 6th, something like that. So there was a, there was a lot going on mentally already. I mean, from an employee standpoint, an employer standpoint, going through the unemployment benefits and, and the things that you had to do to help, to help people in that time was very hard and very stressful. Um, and then local, I forgot about this, but local had a, um, well, somebody broke into artillery like three days before that. And then I think it was the night before the fire, somebody had busted the wind, the front doors at local. Oh gosh. And then I get this call that the restaurant's on fire. So I get down here and it's obvious that this is not going to go well. You had you like know. a triple punch going yeah, on. Yeah, it was not good. Oof. Um, but the fire, it, it was so hot. We had one piece of equipment that just malfunctioned near the line. Um, it caught on fire and then, um, I mean, it, it was so hot in the building that the kitchen sort of, you know, sort of in the back part of the building that the, the plastic, um, exit signs, you know, were completely melted oh, over the front door. Wow. So the, it just was gone. And then of course, uh, we had a lot of damage at Franklin's too and artillery because right. of the water. So right. it kind of was a thing, but, um, I don't think I slept for a good 24 hours. I remember... I remember being up all night, obviously, because I was here. And then I think at 8 o'clock a.m., I already had a message saved that I had written up over the night to the architect. Um, I knew that if I didn't take action immediately, that I wouldn't be open for another year. Mm. And I needed that business to be open for the employer, for the employees to right, make money and right. for us to, you know, at this other restaurant that wasn't doing well, we needed it to be open. Um, so it's the fastest, I think, of, well, it's the I want, it might be the fastest restaurant that's ever been rebuilt. I mean, it was literally June was the fire. Um, I was already working on it the next day. I think we started construction in like September and we were open January. Yeah. It was crazy. It was quick. Yeah. I was, I mean, I think everyone was like, wow, that, how did that happen yeah. <laughs> so quickly? But everyone was so glad it did. I yeah. mean, and I feel like you didn't, it's, it felt like from the outside, you didn't really miss a beat. Like, well, we, I don't think we really missed a beat too much, um, it, but it, what, it, what it did was it created this opportunity to go back to the drawing board and build a kitchen that was reflective of what we would have loved in the beginning had we known what we were getting ourselves into. Right. So I was able to really open up um, a space in the kitchen and move some things around so that we actually, well, now, now we have like a 10 foot line at public. We'd never had that. I mean, right. We have two, we have 12 burners, you know? So it gave you an opportunity Fine. to really Selling. actually grow. Yeah, we actually have a kitchen now. Yeah. So it, in, in retrospect, it was, you know, it's horrible at the time. It was horrible to go through. I mean, building out anything is, is not easy, mm, right? So, right. Um, but it turned out to be a blessing in disguise in some weird way. There's got to be wood to knock on, right? Somewhere. somewhere. Um, I can't I, find any. That's, that's not real wood in the fireplace, I don't believe. So don't knock on that. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you as aware as the rest of us that the public has some of the best burgers in the whole entire area and may possibly the state? Did you say steak? Yeah. I had a steak there last night. It was delicious. Um, yeah. I, I hear that a lot. Um, we, my parents, you know, we have cattle, so we've, they've always brought down fresh beef for us to, to blend in. Sometimes we blend in, sometimes they're fully that, you know, hundred percent right. just right. depends on, you know, how much product we can get, but the burgers are good. They're made with care. They really Steaks are. are really good at public though. Yes. For what you pay for them, yes. they are excellent. They're fantastic. Absolutely. And I fantastic. like my French fries with 
Cajun on top, and also Frenchy. I like um, you know mayo, mustard, and ketchup. So yeah, steak frites and those three things. Yes. like my favorite. Meal. I do that every night. Mayo ketchup would be my f- go-to, and then I mean you've got the truffle thing going on over See, there. I don't do the you. truffle thing, but it's very popular it. though. It is. Money it's not it just too. me ordering it. <laughs> I was going to say. But, you know, I don't think there's any truffle in truffle oil. Really? I want to think that. I could be wrong. Y'all, so y'all have to Google this afterwards yeah. to find okay. out. But I, I, I think that's right. All right. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong. We'll get back I'm to you. We'll ask wrong, our so. research department to get on that. Okay. Yeah, she's on it. Thank you. Um, it, we're, you know, we're talking about being in the restaurant industry during times, uh, traumatic times like a fire and things like that, during times like COVID, which unbelievable time for so many businesses but restaurant industry was i think it was one of those times where a lot of us recognized the restaurant industry as frontline workers yeah well the restaurant industry i mean we talk about restaurants but you know we got to go back to the basics the restaurant industry is the second largest employer in the state of georgia next to agriculture that's right so you got agriculture then you have restaurants um, somewhere over four hundred thousand people in the state more than that, it's about five. Well, is it? it used okay. to be, I mean, prior to the pandemic, I think it was closer to 500. Right. But there's a little over 18,000 eating and drinking establishments in the state of Georgia. And we are, I believe, in, who knows what the real number is, but I think we're about 100,000, you know, people shy of where we need to be in order to get back to sustainable levels. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's hard. Yeah. You know, people's mindsets change you know, to some degree, mm-hmm. you don't get, you get a body sometimes, you don't necessarily get the, the work ethic to go with it. Um, we're pretty fortunate. I mean, you, you, it's so funny you said about people, you know, leaving and coming back to Savannah's yeah. spirit about it, but kind of that same culture happens in, in Daniel Reed. I mean, if we, we are always welcome to push people on in life, mm-hmm. you know, like go do your thing, go fly high. If it doesn't, if you don't get as high as you want, you need to come back, come on back. That happens all the time. Right. I mean, a lot of people that leave, I have people still that worked for me at local in 2010. In fact, I had somebody reach out to me the other day and they said, you know, I, I'm not really working in restaurants anymore, but that was my favorite job I ever had. Right. So there is this little bit of a culture that goes with, um, you know, with being in the right restaurant. I think people want to be there. Yeah. I would agree. I mean, I mean, and that's the case. I feel like, you know, across the board, when you feel the right family connection or whatever the connection it is, it's you're doing something with a team and you're achieving something in a way that brings that feeling up in you. That's like, man, I'm doing something. Well, here's the thing. I mean, how many hours in our lives are we working? So many, so, so many. So, so many. Yes. So I, I always say this, at, you know, at team meetings or lineups, like, let's make that fun. If we're if, if we're going to do this thing that we have to do, mm. let's make it fun and exciting. Right. It doesn't mean that, that, that you, you don't do your job or that the business shouldn't be able to, you know, trust that you're going to get the job done right. But let's do laugh. Let's do joke. Let's have a good time. And as long as we can have a good time and still get the job done, that creates the culture and the environment that people can thrive in. And that's always been our mentality, Daniel Reed, is to have a good time. And you see that, I mean, even in the kitchen, which, you know, a lot of times just not that fun of a place to work. Right. You know, it's hard, hard work. <laughs> but there's, they still get down there and joke around and have a good time. Yeah. So. And the, and it seems like, especially at, at all of the places under your umbrella, I just, I feel that energy going on that's, 
they do feel like they're doing something for yeah. you. I mean, they, they feel like they are creating this atmosphere. They're creating this meal. They're creating an experience, which is what we're all looking for right now, I think, when we go out. Well, Daniel Reed, hospitality. I mean, our main motto is, you know, an experience worth remembering. That's kind of what we, that's what we strive to do every day. Right. So many places to go. There's so many things to, to do. There's so many options. You know, are we 100% all the time? No, nobody's 100% all the right, time. Right, right. But you only get close to 100% when you've got as close to 100% of your workforce trying to give you 100%. So that's yeah. what we try to do every day. Yeah. And we fall short time and time again. But I believe, I'm not sure um, which speech that was that somebody sent to me. Um, past president speaking in France, you know, we fall short uh, time and time again. Yes. So... Every day, you just start over and move on. Yeah, and every day is a new opportunity, especially especially in the restaurant industry, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, new people, same people. Some challenging people. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I give it to our hosts. I think, um, well, obviously, I mean, every position in the restaurant is, it's amazing how it's such a labor-intensive industry. And to make it work well, um, all the pieces kind of have to fit together. So even losing a dishwasher is traumatic in a restaurant. Oh, gosh. But the hosts and what they go through, the front line of that person coming up the door, like you, who's mad because you have to wait 30 right. minutes. You know, like, <laughs> Do you want the steak or do you not want the steak? That would be nice for us to be able to say, hey, do you want it here or do you not? That's right. Don't be rude. You can't say that, though. <laughs> you can't say it. You want to, though. Oh, gosh. And you should. But, but you can't. can't. No. <laughs> <laughs> you absolutely can't. So I feel like, you know, one of the things that I've noticed in Savannah that has really touched me over the years is, is how, how much everyone comes together here. And I've noticed these restaurants and bars, and if somebody's in trouble, it's like they all, they all reach out and they all say, oh, gosh, you guys have something going on. We, we can help you over here. Yeah. It's not – it doesn't feel competitive in a way of, of – other places I've been and, and, and other places I've lived, it feels different. It feels like, oh gosh, we're all in this together. We're all going for the same goal. Can we help you? Can we reach out? Do you feel that here? I do. I think a lot of that, well, there's probably many reasons why that may be. I mean, obviously, you know, I think the hospitality, the Southern hospitality thing of Savannah is, you know, it's really great. There's a, there's a real... There's a real tone to people here that I think want to help one another. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. Um, but keep in mind, Savannah's small. And, you know, in the historic district down here and this groups of restaurants who I also feel like I don't try to compete with anybody. My I, What I need to compete with is myself. <laughs> you right, know, it's like right. I need to make sure that we're doing what we need to do. and don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Look inward, not outward sort of thing. Um, but you've got a class of employees here that um, have been in Savannah for a long time and have moved around. So like night before last, I was at a six course chef's tasting dinner um, down at Stone and Webster and my old executive chef, um, you know, Josh Hammer was, was doing that, but he also um, worked at Husk for a while. And uh, I believe he staged at the gray for a minute and then he was with Noble Fair. So you know, all these people over the course of years, they all kind of, you know, move around in little circles. So everybody knows everybody. So if, if, if something's happening at public, there's people in all, all these restaurants, you know, around that want to help. Yeah. So, and we get to know great. people at all of these places, you know, and we're friends with all of the people who work at this bar and yeah. that restaurant and this place. And, 
and then we see them out and we're friends yeah, and it's, it's just amazing. it's great it is it's Absolutely. really great and and i don't know it's different here there's something special yeah about. well there's a reason why people move away and then move back yeah and it happens all the time that i mean explains I that. so many people that come back to savannah and I, actually it's kind of this thing now they're like oh i'm gonna you know, I'm moving to wherever. I'm like, I'll see you in five years. Right. You know, you'll be back. Yeah. You'll come back around. Yeah. It's, it's the Savannah boomerang. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Um, so we like to end our episodes with some made of questions. Um, so here we go. If you're ready, there's no right answer to these, by the way. Okay, good. Okay, good. So <laughs> question number one, when you have family friends coming to Savannah, what is your must see list made of? Must see list. Um, if they haven't been in here for a while, I definitely think driving out to Tybee or going to the beach is a thing that's underappreciated by yes. a lot of people here. Um, Even the drive there is great. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I definitely think a drive down Bluff Drive at Isle of Hope is a, a kind of a hidden treasure and must-see thing. I, I know the people on Bluff Drive would hate me for saying that <laughs> because it's such a tiny road and they all, you know. We can uh, only go one car at a time. Nice. Yeah. You know. Um, if I was, you know, being down on river street the other night was just kind of fun again. I don't know. It's like, I don't know that a lot of people even go down there anymore when you live here in Savannah or downtown. But I hear that a lot actually fun to like, go down there. You've lived here for 10 years and people are like, I haven't been to river street in like yeah. three years. You know, it's so beautiful though. It's, it's fantastic. So um, so those are some of the things that I think on the must see And honestly, just, just walking. Just walking around, appreciating it. That what's great about being here at public and having local across the park is that sometimes I like just to park my car at local and walk to public in the mornings and then walk back in the evenings just so you can appreciate the beauty of Savannah. I think that's an important thing. It's like, don't forget how beautiful it is. Right. Because we all get comfortable, you know, just walking around. But, you know, don't always walk down, walk around with your head down, like look up and See what's here to appreciate. Take it all in. Like this beautiful building we're in with the mansard roof. Oh my gosh. Gorgeous. Unbelievable. And we're so lucky to be across the street from the public and (laughs) Franklin's artillery (laughs) and all of the things. All right. um, The other made up question is on a, uh, any given day, what's, what's, what is your go-to drink made of? Mm, Red wine. Oh. That's probably, you know, liquor drink. I'm going to go for a gin and tonic probably with two or three limes almost a gimlet but if we're going but i'm a huge connoisseur of red wine i didn't say good red wine mm. if it's red and it's wine i'll drink it's it. good yeah i don't like sweet up for like drier you mm-hmm. know so what's your go-to order over at artillery speaking of good, great drinks um the dock oh i've had that yeah it's good um there's so many good cocktails there also like champagne based cocktails so yeah. I've got a few of those too. You take it seriously over there too at Artillery. The drink situation is serious. Artillery is probably more true to what it was originally intended to be than anything. I mean, first of all, the name's Artillery mm-hmm. and it's in Georgia Hussars Riding Cavalry Building. I mean, when we started that concept, you know, it's one photo on the wall and then you just keep going and going, but everything works together. And artillery is special because we don't, we really, we've always just held true to, to what it is from day one. We don't allow people to stand in there. I mean, occasionally we might let somebody 
stand. But the whole purpose of that is so that we can get that bar experience in Savannah without feeling like you're at a bar. Right. You know, it's really a restaurant. We just don't serve food. We right. serve alcohol instead. We want every person to be able to get the same experience every time they come back. And I've you can't do that if you've got picklebacks so, no, you, you know, can't. over your shoulder being no, slung. You so. can't, but I have snacked on a few of the bar nuts. Yeah. So yeah, people want us to do other things there, you know, charcuterie boards, cheese and wine, whatever. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Absolutely. It's working. I'm going to leave it the way it is. It's definitely working over there. Um, well, the, the most important thing we can end this episode with is to uh, answer the research question we had earlier. Oh, good. Uh, the majority of truffle oil isn't actually made with truffles. Hmm. So Interesting. Does right. it say what it's made of? The ingredient is often a chemical. That so see there designed in a laboratory to mimic the aroma of truffles. The result is an overly pungent oil that falls flat on any dish. So I will just follow that with one other thing. <laughs> Back when I'd walk down the street and people would say to me, "Please don't take off that tuna nishwa salad," mm. I would tell them, "If you knew." <laughs> <laughs> the purple juice that that tuna came out of before it was sliced and put on your salad. You'd never eat it again. Exactly. But hey, can't get it anyway now. Exactly. So it's a good thing you went in that direction. Yeah. Um, it's a very good thing. I'm very glad that you left and came back. I'm very glad that uh, I stumbled into Soho and now I'm sitting at this corner and looking at all these great Daniel Reed places. Tell Daniel Reed I said hello. I will. We're very close. I haven't met him yet, but when um, I do, I'll let same. you know. Same. Um, but we're glad you're a part of the heartbeat of Savannah and continue to be a part of what it is and what it's going to be. Thank you. Thanks for being here. We'd love for you to share this podcast with someone you love or even someone you don't love. You never know. It could mend a fence. Make sure to follow the Made of Savannah podcast so it's always in your podcast feed. And you can follow along with what we're doing on Instagram at Made of Savannah on Instagram. If you're moving to Savannah for the first time or just moving around town, it's a big deal. And it's always easier to work with someone who knows that. Or gosh, better yet, a whole team who knows it. That's McManamy, Jackson, and Hollis, real estate experts who know the stakes and believe wholeheartedly that every client is more than just a transaction. A real estate lawyer can help you avoid some serious issues with your big deal, residential, commercial, corporate, even title insurance. McManamy, Jackson, and Hollis, 415 Eisenhower Drive and mjhfirm.com. That's mjhfirm.com. The Made Up Savannah podcast is also brought to you by First Coast Mortgage. Michael Caputo and the team at First Coast Mortgage love seeing new people discover Savannah and choose to move here. And they've seen a lot of that as a local lender for the last 30 years. At First Coast Mortgage, they are the guide and the clients are the heroes in the home buying story. The home buying process can be confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Getting a solid buying plan in place is the best way to lower the stress involved with getting a home. And starting that planning process early is the best path for most borrowers. Find out how they can simplify the buying process and get pre-approved at firstcoastmortgage.com. First Coast Mortgage, helping you make good decisions so you can love where you live.
Thanks to our sponsor, Spectrum Printing and Marketing. Kim Bullock and Michelle Thompson have over 35 years of experience as a locally owned family business. Spectrum specializes in you. Marketing solutions, increasing your brand recognition, they are the number one source for all of your printing, promotional products, and even custom apparel. They pride themselves in providing the elite customer service care you deserve. And they prove it too by connecting you with a person who is ready and happy to serve you whenever you call. Feel free to pick up the phone, email them, or connect on social media. They would love to talk to you. 912-897-7228. 912-897-7228. You can email Kim at spectrumsav.com. That's Kim at spectrumsav.com. Spectrum Printing and Marketing. They specialize in you. And of course, when you're searching for dedicated, experienced real estate agents, homes for sale, or homes for rent, check us out at Corcoran Austin Hill Realty, 251 Bull Street in Savannah, and CorcoranAHR.com. That's CorcoranAHR.com. Thanks for listening to Made of Savannah. The welcome mat is always out. Thank you.